listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today in the show, we have Kevin Muir. Kevin heads research of global and domestic investment products at East-West Investment Management. Previously, he was the head of equity derivatives at RBC Dominion Securities. He is the author of the blog, the Macro Tours newsletter, and is sought after for his market commentary, including appearances on Real Vision, Macro Voices, and Wharton Business Radio. He graduated from the University of Toronto and is a CFA charter holder. Enjoy my conversation with Kevin Muir. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you today, Ryan. Uh, it's great to have you here. So the first thing I like to start out with guests is talking a little bit about the global financial crisis. Up until that point, we saw SNL crisis, bailout of LTCM, a lot of things all along the way, but nothing was really like 2008. So take us back to what you were doing professionally during that time and what was going on in your mind and maybe if it changed the way you feel about the financial system. Yeah. Well, okay, let's go back even a little farther, back to the uh, long-term capital. And at that time, I was uh, at RBC Dominion Securities as, a, as an equity derivatives trader. And when I was there, I was kind of had a ringside seat to all the problems that were occurring in the, you know, in the futures market and the finance market. And I thought to myself, boy, this is this is crazy. We're never going to see something like this again. And uh, then 2000 came, and we had the collapse of the dot com bubble. And I again, I thought to myself, oh wow, this is a, a huge deal. The collapse of the Nasdaq, uh, the decline of you know, what was it, 75% of the NASDAQ 100. I thought that that was something that we would never see. But then what happened, that in the next decade, they blew an even bigger bubble with the great uh, kind of reflation of the credit and the real estate bubble of the mid-2000s. And then when the, the great financial crisis happened... I was actually trading for myself at this point. I was just uh, me and another fellow from my old job were got together and we were just basically proprietary traders. And the good thing was that we were able to trade whatever we wanted. The bad thing was that we were able to trade whatever we wanted. So we got ourselves into a lot of trouble in different ways. I was actually fortunate enough to be short going in, but I kind of thought to myself when, when the initial decline happened that it was it was over i thought okay it was one of these situations when the first i don't know what was it 40 percent or something like that i thought okay th it's going to get better from here and that summer it just got worse and worse and worse and i know you've been kind of talking about some of the fact about uh, how there was uh, the atms might not have worked and uh, how bad it really was and I think that a lot of people that aren't in the finance industry don't realize how close we were to the whole system tipping over at that point. Exactly. 
Yeah, no, and it was really close. And, uh, you know, Mohammed El Arian, who was at PIMCO, he has the story about telling um, the his wife to go out and uh, take all the money she can out of uh, the bank machine because he was worried about uh, the machines not working that next morning. And he was had a ringside seat, and he was, if anyone should know whether the system was going to work, it would be the, the head of PIMCO. Yeah, it's amazing how you hear those stories from people even so high up and there was still even a lot of confusion as what to really expect. I remember that weekend after Bank of America got a cash injection and of course there were others all along the way when the dominoes started to fall. But let's take this going to present day. So back in 2008 and you talked about some of the other crises in 2008, we had this obviously buildup of uh, mortgage credits, and let's talk about present day where we see a credit buildup, but maybe in different areas of the market, especially corporate credit and others. Right. So back in um, in the mid 2000s, we had a lot of leverage buildup in credit. And what you had was people reaching for yield and creating, you know, CDO squares and all this crazy stuff like that. But it was also, it was, it was a lot of it was done on the bank's balance sheets. So it was the banks doing crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's changed because it's, it's now more and more clients reaching for yield and clients reaching for duration, doing anything they can to pick up the returns that have been basically being snuffed out by the zero interest rate policies. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, let's go towards monetary policy. So, obviously, in 2008, this huge injection of liquidity was needed by the Fed to keep the ATMs on and to keep the plumbing of the financial system going. And most people believe that they did the right thing uh, for the most part there as far as saving the system and that type of injection was warranted at the time. Before 2008, the balance sheet had actually grown organically to, it was up to around $800 billion. After the fact, they took it all the way up to $4.5 trillion, And it's mostly stayed there. It's been rolling off. Supposedly, they talked about it was going to be like watching paint dry. And now we've seen this sharp tick up and especially with the what's going on in the repo market. Obviously, it's on the, the lower end. They're buying the 30-day bills. But how do you feel about the easing in general? Did you ever feel like we'd still be at these type of urgency stimulus? Or do you see this as something that's more normal, that is just the way they should be doing the policy? Well, do I would I have ever thought that we would be kind of years into a economic expansion and that Europe would be still negative rates and that the balance sheet would be at this level never in a million years I I would have uh, I still remember uh, the open letter to Ben Bernanke during the second or the third QE when a lot of smart people signed a letter in the Wall Street Journal saying that this was going to cause inflation and all this stuff and that he shouldn't do it. And uh, if you'd asked me at that time, should you, you know, would you put your name on there? I would have said for sure, this is going to end with a great reflation that the likes that we've never seen before. And of course, uh, that was dead wrong. And uh, I'll be the first to admit that that was that was incorrect. I I look at these policies and and think to myself, well, why 
why are they still here? What what are we doing wrong? What don't we understand about the system? And you know, what has changed that causes us to continue down this road? And I think that Europe is really the poster child of uh, kind of monetarism gone awry. The fact that they have gone and they think that somehow negative 50 basis points at the front end of the curve is going to solve anything. And in fact, talk about the fact that they're going to go and make it even more negative to try to stimulate growth is just beyond me. And, you know, we can talk about this, you know, in the, in going forward here, but I really think that since then we've kind of come to realize that monetary policy has become way more impotent than it ever has, you know, in the past. Yeah, yeah, it brings up a good point. So going to the inflation question, um, of course, I remember the op-ed. I know Cliff Asnes signed that letter um, and others as well. So talking about the inflation piece, a lot of people were worried about too much money printing and that would cause kind of that CPI level inflation. So instead of seeing that, we've seen asset price inflation, but we haven't seen the type of inflation, how the Fed usually measures it in, in price and wage growth. So when you look at how QE works, obviously the Fed and other central banks are creating money, digital dollars, and then buying, whether it's treasuries or assets from these banks, and of course, bringing down the yield. And so some people look at that and say, okay, that's really just an asset swap. So basically they're just swapping assets and there's nothing really interesting about that. And then the other side of the coin says, okay, well, that's really more like a debt monetization because these assets haven't haven't rolled off. So taking the US, because each central bank is a little bit different in how, how this has worked, looking at the US, how, how do you actually view it? The debt is up to about 23 tri- trillion the Fed right now has about $4 trillion on the books. Do you view this as, as an asset swap, or, or do you think this is something more akin to debt monetization? Uh, I, I guess I'm not a pure, it's only an asset swap and it doesn't affect um, the market or the economy. I, I, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I'm not one to say this is going to cause this high, you know hyperinflation that everyone is worried about because the the reality is that when you do those quantitative easing or just let's just take monetary policy in general a lot of times it's not nearly as effective as most market participant participants believe and and let's just kind of think about it in terms of logically if you're sitting there in your uh a CFO or a CEO of a large organization, and you're thinking about whether you should go and, uh, you know, do some CapEx spending. Do you really think that moving rates from 2% down to 1% is going to change your decision about whether you should go and uh, invest in this plant? And I, I contend that it doesn't because The reality is that whether that plant is successful or not means way more than that, you know, 100 basis point difference. Mm -hmm. And this is the part that I think that a lot of uh, kind of market participants and especially, you know, Wall Street, Wall Streeters think that that, that the moment you lower rates, people are going to go out and spend money on CapEx. 
And I think that they're they're not going to, and that they're, the CFO is actually going, and he would he or she would rather see a situation where they have a strong economy, and would almost rather be going and doing that capex spending in a rising rate environment because then the possibility of being wrong, because really that's what they're worried about. They're worried about building a plant. And even if they could finance it for zero, if the reality is if there's no one there to buy the product, that that's going to cause a huge loss. So even at zero interest rate, it doesn't matter if there's nobody to buy the product. So that kind of problem with monetary policy and the belief that somehow that all of a sudden we're going to get more spending because of the lowering of rates is the is where we get into a lot of our problems. Now, I will say one big caveat is that it often doesn't work on the, like the, uh, in terms of the the, the the consumer, the consumer, and especially in housing, if you give them lower rates and lower and more credit, they will go buy as much house as they can. And this is what happened in the two thousands: is that we lowered rates as a result of the dot com bubble crash, and we made credit available, and basically everybody went out and got a house and two and four and five in some cases, right? And there's this huge speculation. And then when we came out of the 2008 crash, uh, what happened was credit was curtailed to the US consumer, but it wasn't curtailed to like, for example, Canadian or Australian consumers. So when the rates went down, we ended up blowing an epic bubble as well, basically from the fallout of the dot-com, or sorry, from the fallout of the great financial crisis system uh, crash. Now, going back to my point is that I go like when you talk about QE, does it cause inflation? Does it cause interest rates? Is it just is it just kind of an asset swap? I'll put it together and say on the whole, monetary policy is nowhere near as effective as everybody believes it is. And that it's not cause it's it's basically becoming less and less effective, which is meaning why they're having to do more and more extreme policies. And that's the problem is that they're trying to get, they're trying to move the, the economy by doing crazier and crazier things to the point where we're actually got negative rates. And, you know, the, the fact is, if there's ever something in the system that shows you that something's broken, it's the fact that we are now, you know, negative 50 basis points in Europe. It just shows you that monetarism is broken. Yeah, that's exactly right. And when you look at, I don't know exactly what the number is today, but somewhere between that 15 and 17 trillion of negative yielding sovereign debt around the world. And you talked about that diminishing marginal return where you're lowering rates, maybe from five to 6% or something like that. Maybe that would spur a little more borrowing. Whereas if you're lowering from zero to negative and negative to more negative, it actually has kind of the opposite effect. So switching over to more fiscal policy, you've talked about, we're kind of getting to the end of this grand experiment where I think everyone is finally waking up to realize that the the monetary policy all around the world has reached its limits. Now you talked about back in in some commentary previously back in 1981, no one thought inflation could be tamed. And then we had this secular turn of 30 years of lower rates. And now everyone in the marketplace is kind of looking around saying, how can we create inflation? We'll never be able to create it. We're going to be in this type of scenario for for years and years to come, often 
times people talk about the three Ds, the debt demographics, deflation. Um, you, you also mentioned maybe in 10 years, we look back and say, you know, we'll, we'll laugh at the fact that we thought we were powerless to create the inflation. So talk a little bit about some of your outlook on how the fiscal policy could actually flip things around. Okay, so you know, I explain why monetar- monetary policies become less effective, um, and and you actually articulated it much better than me in terms of uh, as you approach the zero bound, it becomes even more so. Uh, I think that we've haven't understood how the economy works, and we have relied on monetary policy on every single. A decline in you know business cycle. So every time we got into trouble, we tried to fix it with uh, you know monetary policy uh, stimulus, and this has worked. But the trouble is that we've needed more and more extreme monetary policy, right? Like it used to be that you know declining rates down to three percent could cause the, the you know lift the market back up and then we had to go down to one percent and then finally we hit zero and not only did zero not work we had to do qe and so every single solution every single slowdown we tried to you know just throw more and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper money at it without really understanding why that's not working now let's go back to fiscal side of it i think that we finally hit a point where people have understood that there's more to this equation than just monetary policy and I contend that like when, when the great financial crisis happened, and I remember distinctly that the, the bond market was trading at 1%, and I, I, I remember the QE and everyone was saying how that the bond, bonds are going to go to zero, and everyone was all bold up on bonds. And I said, well, if everyone's so bold up on bonds, why doesn't the government go out and issue a slug of bonds and then spend the money? Because mm-hmm. the market is basically telling you that we're in a situation where there is not enough spending. The demand side of the equation is lacking. So the government should step in there and do that spending. And unfortunately, th- it just didn't happen. And in fact, the government went and did countercyclical fiscal kind of uh, retraction at that point. Now, everyone will say, but but the deficits went up under Obama. And, and it's true that the deficits exploded under Obama, but most of those were actually uh, the stabilizers. And if you go look at this situation where you look at discretionary spending of the U.S. federal budget over the past 40, uh, you know, four decades, you'll notice that up until 2005, uh, six, there was only two years when the discretionary spending fell year over year. I think one of them was 1969, and then there was another one around the Clinton era. Every other year, the discretionary spending went up. Now, when you come into 2006, the, the great financial crisis under Obama, five of his eight years had discretionary spending getting cut. So we had a situation where we were getting government doing pro-cyclical uh, fiscal kind of reduction at the time when the gov- when the economy was begging for some procyclical fiscal expansion. And if you remember back to Bernanke, he was sitting there pleading with them to go and help him out and to do fiscal instead of having to rely on him on doing more and more extreme monetary policies. And this is what's changed is that people are finally, you know, it, 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 nobody listened to Bernanke back then. Uh, even, you know, Draghi, they hadn't listened to him recently. But it seems to be over the last year, there's been kind of a, re- a realization that monetarism has it reached its limits and that the fiscal is going to have to do more of the heavy lifting going forward. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk a little bit about, we've seen some of these presidential candidates talking about various plans, whether it's Elizabeth Warren or Andrew Yang has his, I think it's a $2 trillion plan to give out like $1,000 a month. So something like UBI. And then we've heard about from both sides of, of the aisle, certain infrastructure spending plans, whether it's the green deal or green bonds. So let's talk a little bit about MMT and and fiscal stimulus. There's this notion that MMT, well, there's a lot of misconceptions about it. So let's kind of break down some of those misconceptions first off to start. Okay. So the first one is that the MMT is is a policy of the, of the left. I, I think that's just BS. I think that it's actually a way to understand how the modern uh, you know, economy the, based upon fiat works. The trouble about our economics textbooks is that they were all written under the gold standard and, and we went off the gold standard and we never changed our, uh, you know, our textbooks or our understanding of how it works. And uh, the, my problem with MMT is that everyone says, oh, no, that's just an excuse to spend it. It's just an excuse to monetize the debt. And I said, no, you know, th- the way I look at mon- uh, MMT is I d- divide it up into two different parts. I call it the descriptive part, which is basically um, understanding how a fiat monetary system works. And then the prescriptive part, meaning once you understand that, what you're going to do about it. Okay. And I always say that let's just put aside the prescriptive part and just talk about the descriptive part. And this is one of the things about MMT that people misconstrue is that it's the that it's that it's always involves spending. You can equally instead of if the government if the economy is needing fiscal stimulus, you could equally do it with a tax cut mm-hmm. as you can with spending. So, for example, one of the fathers of MMT, which is Warren Mosler, he he's a big believer that you should cut payroll taxes. And he's, Mm -hmm. he actually is not in, is he's not, there's no green policy under him. He just thinks that the way to, you know, balance an economy is more through fiscal. And although he's a little extreme for me in terms of, I believe that monetarism still plays a role. I just think it, it can't play the only role that one of the ideas about MMT, that it's this, this, this uh, kind of policy of the left and involves spending and printing until we get crazy inflation is I think incorrect. And I think that it's, it's vital that we all understand it. And I wish that people didn't just hear MMT and kind of throw up in their mouth a little bit and just ignore what they were saying. Because to me, I think that there's a lot of things that we can learn about the way a modern economy works. Yeah. And there's a few things about MMT that confuses people a little bit. So I think one of the tenets is the spending first by governments. And obviously, governments that issue their own currency being able to, you know, print as much as they want. So there's no default risk there. And looking at government debt differently compared to corporate debt or, let's say, a personal balance sheet, I think that that's really confusing for a lot of people. So let's take the spending first issue. So MMT, at least some of the proponents say that the government can create the money, spend the money, and tax revenue is really so people will just demand dollars in order to pay those taxes. How do you feel about that piece? Yeah. So that's that was one actually when I 
Uh, let me just back up and tell you my MMT story. So when I originally heard this MMT, I would see it on Twitter and I think to myself, what is this? I, I figured out it was modern monetary theory. And then I realized I didn't know anything about it. So I reached out to a buddy and I said, listen, I don't have any clue about this. I'm an economics major. I talk about these things for a living. I, I guess I should learn. So he passed me on and I he sent me to listen to uh, Stephanie Kelton, who is uh, one of the... Um, kind of the, the the professors that's most at the forefront of the MMT movement. And I watched a video where she talked about that spending first thing. And uh, she said that she argued that the government spends first and then borrows after. And I was like, no, that can't be. Like, that's just like, you know, I thought to myself, what you know, what's this madness she's talking about? Like, how can you spend money you don't have? Right. And, and, it, and it is hard to get your mind wrapped around. And I, listen, I, I, I would I watch this video and I went about my weekend and then I went back and watched it again and thought about it. And, and then I kind of kept thinking about it. And she, and she says that the, you know, what happens is the government is actually only um, forced to borrow the money from a self-imposed rule that we've kind of legislated. Mm-hmm. So that the government's, if, if it's not like there's some sort of rule of nature that impl- you know that makes us c- create the money first and then and then spend it. And the way to think about this is the, this is the example I like to use is the example of uh, when the um, uh, Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. The U.S. didn't say like they they immediately mobilized all their resources and they didn't say to themselves, "Listen, we got to go and we have to build our outer navy. We have to do all this stuff, but let's go check with the bond market first because we're going to have to borrow a lot of money to do all this. No, they didn't do that. They went and spent <laughs> and borrowed after. And in fact, once you actually go down this road, you realize that this this need to borrow is actually just something that we as a society have chosen to do. Now, you might say to yourself at this point, you'll go, but wait, if the government spends too much money and let's say they didn't borrow, they just printed, they just spent it, wouldn't that create inflation? And the truth of the matter is that yes, eventually it would create inflation, but it's that eventually part. And that is the kind of one of the realizations, the MMT is, is the fact that the government is not financially constrained in the way that we think it is. It is real resource constrained. And going back to our example about the war, you'll say, but wait, they had uh, kind of war bonds during the period of the World War II while they were doing this. Surely that was to pay for the war. Well, no, that was actually created because one of the things is if you're trying to mobilize as much of the society as you can to basically take all the steel and all the labor and everything and, and kind of make as much of something as you can, the last thing you want is some guy or some you know family out there buying a new car. Because those real resource, those those like that steel and that labor could have been building a ship or guns or whatever you needed to do. So what you do is you actually made a war bond and that war bond basically took money out of the system and made it so that that wouldn't get spent. And, and so it was a way to change behavior. But going back to the kind of the, the thing to think about is that they were never constrained. There was never any doubt that they were going to go and make these ships and make this, make this uh, kind of the, what was needed to fight the war. Yet, for some reason, we think we're financially constrained when it comes to the everyday part of it. Yeah, and so the the spending first, I think, trips a lot of people up. When you look at 
the argument about being able to tax after the fact, how would that actually work in practice? So are treasuries and maybe also taxes a way for the government to, to stop people from buying, let's say, cars and computers and houses on the taxing side and then on the treasury side, stopping maybe corporations and larger institutions from doing that. So as a way to control the money supply or, or they really um, wouldn't be needed at all. Right. So now I'm not a pure MMT or so I get into right. trouble and I, I kind of like different flavors of this. Th- th- so that's not to great. paint everything yeah. with a broad brush. You're absolutely correct. And I kind of laugh because I get, I, I, I enjoy enough MMT that all the, traditional finance guys like me and then i i have enough problems with mmt that all the mmt guys don't like me so i <laughs> i end up like being the, the worst of worst worlds but i kind of i don't believe that uh so i can tell you what they believe i can tell you what i believe but the long and short of it is that when you tax you take money out of the system so there's no doubt about it that everybody agrees that taxing will go and uh that you can balance an economy through the either taking, you know, more or, or putting in money by taxing less or by doing the opposite, which is taxing more. So one of the big kind of pushbacks on MMT is that no government is going to go and be willing to raise taxes during a period of increased inflation. And that's kind of uh, a lot of people that, you know, smart people that understand it and will accept the kind of the descriptive part about MMT, like that part that I told you about how a modern fiat uh, system works, might push back and say, listen, that's all well and good. But the reality is that once governments start spending or taxing less and it creates the inflation, nobody's going to want to be the party pooper that actually goes and raises taxes. And that there's probably a huge element of truth to that, which point then Ben Bernanke in his, uh, in his kind of retirement, he writes a blog at the Brookings Institute. And he argued that the federal reserve should be in charge of this fiscal stimulus. And the way that he says it is that basically at a period, you know, maybe it's at zero bound or wherever you, at the point where you need inflation that he, the federal reserve, basically pushes fiscal out into the government and then the government goes out and decides on how to spend it. So the government, the, so, you know, it in essence gives the federal reserve the ability to kind of turn on and off the fiscal taps as needed. And he doesn't say how it's going to be done. He just says, listen, here it is. I'm pushing this out. You guys decide whether you want to hand it to everyone, whether you want to spend it on, you know, building infrastructure, whether you want to give everyone a tax rebate, you decide. That's not us to, up to us as central bankers. It's only up to us to push more into the system. So that is one way of, of doing it. Right. And I think when you look at the dual mandate, at least here in the US with employment and price stability, that's actually issued by Congress. So down the road, we could maybe even see a change there as far as the mandate. And there's there's been some discussion even just recently about the inflation targeting. Some of the people at the Fed have talked about they don't really understand inflation and maybe how they're measuring it going back to exactly what you said and i was reading an article in the new york times um just a couple days ago about paul volcker and his new book coming out he talked about there's really no academic studies or or reasoning that he knows of of targeting that two percent number so i think there's even a lot of confusion even when you look at someone like paul volcker or, or Greenspan and others who have who have been commenting on this. 
Right. I think the 2% came from, it was either the Bank of Australia or New Zealand. And I think they were the one of the first to do it. And then it just kind of got accepted by everyone else and it's become a standard. But you're absolutely right. Like, where did we come up with that? Like, why? Like, I, I can tell, I, I actually know the answer. They're going to cite these papers that'll tell you that that's the optimum amount. But it goes back to uh, my belief that, uh, uh, like before MMT, before I kind of came upon this understanding about the about how the economy works and the, the difference between fiscal and, and monetary policy, I had become quite disillusioned with the whole economics kind of profession or you know study. And even though I was an economics major, if you told me that I would have spent uh, weekends listening to professors talk about it, I would have told you you were insane. They go put in these DSGE models and they and they you know basically hold all these unrealistic kind of uh, variables constant and then come up with all these stupid stuff that just made no sense to me, especially someone who's been in the market that can tell them that's not how the world works. One of the things that attracted me to MMT was that it explained so much of the problems that we were occurring. It explained why we didn't have inflation. It explained why the euro was having so much trouble. And, you know, we go back to, I talk about that op-ed, that op-ed you'll notice wasn't signed by any MMT, um, kind of uh, professors because they understood at that time that that wasn't going to create inflation. And even going back to Europe, like you go look at Stephanie Kelton and Warren Mosler, they had been warning that having a monetary union without a political kind of togetherness and without the fiscal being able to be on track, was going to be a recipe for disaster. And so I, to me, one of the things that I, I is just kind of open my eyes is this MMT, regardless of whether what it's what everyone is using it for perverting it for in terms of, you know, uh, uh, advancing their climate agenda or whatever, in terms of understanding what's going on in the market, it does a much, much better job than almost than anything else that I've seen out there. And I think that people are foolish to not kind of open their eyes to go learn about it because as traders, it's really helping. And I'll tell you one last story. When I wrote my first MMT piece, I kind of, uh, one of them was everything you wanted to know, but we're afraid to ask. I had some very, very smart guys reaching out to me. And I'm talking about like market level wizard guys that were sending me like saying, oh, you know what? I've been using this for five years. Here are my notes from Stephanie Kelton from 2011. And I was just kind of shocked to myself that, that there was a lot of people that, that kind of just put aside the dogma, put aside what they believed in terms of what was right politically and just said, hey, can I use this to understand how markets work? And they did. And they it ended up being they were better for it. Yeah. And you've talked a little bit about this bond bubble for many years and you've written about this on your blog and i think you have a a really interesting twitter thread about it as well yeah your pinned tweet so let's talk a little bit about that and how this ties into the conversation of how we may get some inflation finally with this possible regime shift on the fiscal side now a lot of people have hammered this bond bull market drum talking about the U.S. taking on too much debt and then having a default, whether it's real or nominal, and all these other reasons where they probably don't make a lot of sense. And you kind of go through that on your thread there. Right. Talk a little bit about how how you see that and, and reconciling that with MMT, because I think a lot of governments around the world are looking to obviously inflate away their debt. And this could kind of be that end game where we're leading to. Right. Well, okay. So 
I, I, I'm a big Bond bear, like a huge Bond bear. I think it's going to actually be the, the, the asset class that catches everyone off guard over the next uh, 10 years. And uh, I, I, I still stand by that statement that we're going to look back and laugh at the idea that we couldn't create inflation. But I, one of the things that I want to make clear is I'm not like a Peter Schiff or any, any of these doomsdayer guys, Bond bears, because they think that somehow we're going to get a collapse in uh, you know the system because of so much debt. And the first thing I'll tell you is like go look at japan japan's got 250 percent of gdp as as debt and they still have no problem financing their their debt so i i do not think that we're going to get a situation where there's going to be some sort of crisis that causes the u.s to stop being able to uh, kind of um finance their debt and that's why i'm such a bond bearer so that's the first thing next thing you know i don't believe that china that you'll hear like china's gonna stop financing our debts are uh, mm-hmm. and and that's gonna cause it to collapse again i call bs on that the reality is that they've already stopped and uh somebody else stepped up to the plate and bought it and uh i just don't think that that's going to be a situation that uh that that is very probable at all. The other thing is the fact is people will tell me that the U S dollar is going to lose their reserve status. Although I'm sympathetic to that, I think it's going to take many, many decades and it's not going to be something that causes them to again, once once again, not to be able to fund their debts. Lots of countries, again, I'll use uh, Japan, they are not the reserve uh, stat, you know, reserve currency. Yet they somehow managed to fund 250 percent of their GDP and have their currency be one of the strongest uh, currencies around. Now, so I kind of think, why then are you a bond bear? And I believe I'm a bond bear because I think that we're going to have growth um, from a kind of a positive perspective i suspect that what we're going to do is we're actually going to create the uh, inflation and the growth that we want and i think that as we begin to understand how we go about creating growth and inflation through fiscal means what will happen is it will get abused and this is again uh, going back to my mm-hmm. argument that the fact that i tell you that mmters don't like me they all tell me there's no way that they they that there's no problem they're going to understand how to stop inflation I say, you know, after being in the markets for 25 plus years, I'll tell you one thing that a good idea is always taken too far. So at first, mm-hmm. inflation is going to be actually welcome. And the reality is it's going to feel really great. Like the move from two to three is probably going to be welcome. The markets are going to fly. Everything's going to be terrific. But it's then it's going to what all, all, all other things get abused. It will too also get abused. Now, so how is this going to happen? Well, let's just stop and think about what Europe tried to do. So Europe was faced with a situation where the U S was doing fiscal stimulus. Cause uh, you know, when Trump came in and did his tax cut, people don't realize it, but he was actually the most MMT president that we've ever had. You know, we were eight years into an economic expansion and instead of going and trying to balance a budget, like a Keynesian was what most Keynesians would tell you to do. He said, no, we're going to cut taxes. Okay, that's very MMT like. When they said to him, "Why are you calling for lower rates if the economy is so good?" He said, "Because there's no inflation." Again, that's what an MMTer would tell you to do. It's basically they go and they argue that the only real constraint is inflation. It is not. Um, it is not a financial constraint. So what happened was when Trump went and did the tax cuts. 
you know, we can argue about how effective they were and where they went, but it doesn't really matter. The reality is the U.S. became the strongest economy in the world at that time. Okay, so let's just stop and think about what Europe tried to do. They were faced with a slowing economy. And instead of going out and also spending like the, the U.S. did, they, in essence, lowered interest rates even further. So they made them even more negative. And in doing so, they caused like an, in, uh, just a bond bull market as basically everyone panicked and tried to buy any bond they could because the Europeans were trying to solve all their problems with more and more negative interest rates. And in doing so, they pushed the, the, the bond market, world bond markets, to levels this summer that were just obscene. And there was just a huge panic buy in the, in the bond markets. And we've hit a point now where this, these monetary policies are no longer just not effective. They are actually hurting economies. You go look at what's happening to the European pension plans. They're getting bankrupt. And this is just absurd because if you think about the German tenure, it's trading at minus 40 basis points. They're actually getting paid 40 basis points to spend and invest in their country. Mm-hmm. So I think we've hit a point where where governments are going to start to wake up and realize that they are not financially constrained and they're going to start to spend. And the one thing that you have to realize is that once they start to spend that they 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 won't stop because it'll feel good, it'll do well and it that it'll eventually be taken too far. And for those who are thinking that the governments are powerless to create inflation and are basically investing in like let's just take German boons and minus 40 basis points. Not only are you not earning a real return, but you are earning a negative return. Like if there's ever been like, like the very definition of Ponzi is like the idea that you, you know, or the, or sorry, not Ponzi. The very definition of the greater fool is the fact that you could only make money on this is if you sell it to somebody that even goes to even a more negative rate. Like mm-hmm. if you hold this to if you hold your bonds to maturity, you're you're guaranteed to lose money. And I contend that even the ones that are still nominal, that you will look back and you will even if you, I, I have no doubt that the the U.S. bond market is gonna it, they're never gonna default. So I'm not one of these guys that thinks oh the the U.S. government is gonna default. But I do believe that the governments are gonna start to figure out how to create inflation, and you are in essence gonna have been locking in um kind of generational and it's not even generational it's actually uh interest rate lows that we haven't seen in what thousands of years because i don't believe we've ever gone this negative before and these are the point that people are the most bullish on bonds that they've ever been and and i just like it's just it fascinates me that people are sitting and telling me oh no you have to own bonds because we're going even more lower it just and yet these these are the same people who tell me oh if i was around in the dot-com bubble i would have for sure shorted it because it would have been so easy to see bubbles are never easy to see and the when you're in them it's it's the the vast majority of people believe the narrative because if they didn't believe the narrative they wouldn't be bubbles 
Right. And I think we've seen a lot of people talking about buying bonds for capital appreciation and buying stocks for yield, which is (laughs) completely opposite and on its head. Now, when you look at kind of the mechanics of how this could play out is some more government spending, some fiscal stimulus, and hopefully getting that organic growth and jumpstarting economies, which is what we've all been hoping for and, and planning for. Now, let's take the other scenario where, you know, do you see that playing out before, let's say we hit an economic hiccup or a market dislocation where the Fed or other central banks might have to come in and maybe, you know, do more easing and, and maybe try to double the balance sheet in order to provide some I guess, liquidity so things don't get out of control? Or how do you see that piece playing out? So I think that's the most difficult part. And, I, and I've heard mm-hmm. like a lot of smart people will tell me, oh, Kev, you know, you're right. You're just five years early. Mm-hmm. And uh, other people will tell me, oh, you know what? You, you're right, but you have to tell me when we're going to have a crisis because all of these radical policies that you're envisioning them doing won't occur until we get that sort of crisis environment. Mm-hmm. And listen, I'm I'm sympathetic to those views. Like uh, I can't tell you exactly when it's going to happen. I just look at it and think to myself, from a risk reward perspective, that it's uh, plain like like buying bonds to sell them at an even more negative rate, and uh, is just is a disaster w- waiting to happen because inevitably the surprises will be the other way. That's, that's, that is what I can tell you for sure, is that going forward, we will not see surprises to, on the deflationary side. And, and this is why. It's because everyone is looking for that. Yeah, everyone's expecting that. Yeah. So I just think that, that even if we get that, the reality is that that's already priced into the market. And so the surprises to the, to the asset prices will be that, that, that even the, the deflation that might occur don't doesn't actually cause uh, your your bonds to do that well. And how might we see this show up as far as some inflation coming? Is that do we see this showing up on the longer end of the curve? We used to have kind of the bond vigilantes. So is this something we'd see on the long end of the curve first or how would we kind of see this showing up in the marketplace? So this is another debate that we uh, that I have with a lot of fellow people because people will mm-hmm. tell me that that the financial repression will occur, mm-hmm. and uh, that's obviously the Fed holding rates below um, kind of the rate of inflation. And I'm sympathetic to that idea that there, we're going to have financial repression because we can't afford to not have financial repression given the high level of private and public uh, debt. But the question is, is that financial repression occur on the entire curve or just the short end? And some people will tell me, oh, no, the Fed's going to do just like uh, the Japan does, which is doing, does yield curve targeting. And just like they did in the 60s, I can't remember when it went or the, maybe it was the, after the 40, 50s when they basically um, targeted, they, they kept the long end pinned as well. 
the government can can and 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 if they do want to, they can pin not just the short end of the curve, but they could say ten-year money is also going to be one percent and do financial repression there as well. So I don't know. One of the things I do believe is that. Uh, America is the land of the free. You know, my brother went to school at University of New Hampshire, and I see their license plate is live free or die. And I kind of think to myself that if anybody is going to allow their bond market to continue trading, it's probably you guys. I would, if, if somebody was asking me my advice on the government side, and um, I would tell them to le let the long end trade, because I think the long end is going to give you an important inflation uh, signal. And with this so, targeting, and would this targeting occur with just open market operations or some other type of mechanics? Well, well, no, they could just pin it. They could just say tomorrow, uh, this is the rate for the 10 year. And then they, they literally would just pin it to that. Yeah. And then they would have to buy or sell the proper amount. Like the, the, the federal reserve can pin and whatever it wants. Like they could go pin gold tomorrow if they wanted to, if they had a, you know, as long as they pinned it at, at a level, like they couldn't pin it too low because then everyone would buy it and they would be forced to go and, um, and, and sell all the gold. And then eventually they would run out. But in, in essence, think about it. Let's just use gold instead of the tenure. Let's say the federal reserve wanted, was allowed to, um, you know, basically do whatever they wanted to and they wanted to pin gold to 5000 they literally could do as much as they wanted because they would just say we're going to buy all the gold we want can at 5000 and so they would just keep buying gold and gold and gold until we got a situation where like uh, they they the market would kind of clear so they could pin the tenure the same way. They could just, as long as they don't pin it, um, you know, at a little, well, it's actually even easier for them to pin that, but you know, the tenure, cause they can create them if they really had to, like it's not quite that easy because they technically can't make 10 years, but they can influence the, the price of money a lot easier than anything else. Yeah. And it seems like when you look on the very short end of the curve, obviously they're doing this liquidity injection to help stabilize the repo market, buying the 30 day bills. It has been increasing the balance sheet, but it's obviously on the very short end. So when you look at that, I think, you know, when the rate spiked up, was it to seven, eight percent, something like that? These scary spikes when you look at the chart. And then them trying to basically come in and intervene and stabilize things. Chairman Powell just mentioned in his presser just a couple days ago, talking about they're doing some forensics and they're having a lot of analysts look at this situation and kind of admitting they don't fully understand what's going on. What's your view on the repo market and then them kind of trying to micromanage this situation just in general, I guess. Well, I, I don't think they know what's going on. And that's why they had to get Simon Potter. I believe that he had gotten let go from the fed and they embarrassingly had to ask him back for uh, one of the fed meetings to explain what was happening. And he, he was kind of a, a, a guy that was in charge of the New York fed at the actual operation. Cause the New York fed is in charge of actually all those sorts of kind of operational, uh, you know, parts of the federal reserve. I, you know, I, I I I I follow a lot of people that 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 kind of look very closely at this, and there's a lot of like a lot of different opinions, yeah. and I I I try to step back and ask myself kind of from a bigger perspective, like a from a you know like a ten thousand feet, what's going on? Why is this happening? Is this happening because 
there's not enough money for the repo or is this happening for another reason? And and a lot of people always focus on there's not enough money for it and that's got to mean that there's somebody in trouble, there's a bank with the not enough liquidity and all this stuff. And although I am sympathetic to that view because let's face it, there's a lot of regulations that have made the trading of the bank reserves much more complicated than they ever had to be. Uh, I also think to myself, well, if the economy is demanding credit, then eventually we're going to get a situation where parts of the economy will demand credit and, and you will get rates rising. And this is the part that I think a lot of people miss is that mm-hmm. rates can rise for, for bad reasons, meaning that there's not enough people that are willing to um, kind of buy that bond at that price, or they can rise for good reasons in that there's more credit being created. And let's just take your example of all of a sudden we had a situation where the long end started really selling off and it sold off because there was a lot of credit being created because the economy, people were optimistic you know, about the world, about the economy, like take back, you know, let's think back to my idea about the, uh, the CFO that was wanting to do, um, uh, build a plant. What if all of a sudden the real economy was demanding more money, uh, for plants, then it would be a good thing. And it wouldn't be something bad that we should be worried about that rates were rising. And, and this is one of the kind of my apprehensions to about, you know, looking at all these things and saying, oh, rates are going up. This must mean the end of the world. And I think that in a, in a properly functioning good economy, rates should be heading up because there should be people demanding credit. So I'm not really sure um, about the repo, whether it's as bad as we think. Um, I'm not saying that, that this is for sure a good development, but I'm saying that maybe we should think about it might not be as bad as, as, we, as everyone is, is on zero hedges claiming. <laughs> right. And I think your thesis makes a lot of sense about fiscal stimulus coming into play, more government spending rates rising because of that. And the bond market actually, you know, rates selling off is is kind of kind of a good thing, and and looking towards a better economy that way. Right now, one thing I will say: if the Fed does not provide the liquidity that the economy is demanding, that is without a doubt a bad thing especially in this day and age of the uh, the, that we are way too financialized than we've ever been because one of the consequences of all this you know uh, reliance on monetarism is that we have kind of levered up the system in the fact that we see corporations with huge balance sheets because although they might not be taking money out to go and do capex meaning invest in that uh, plant they sure have no problem issuing bonds and buying back their stock and so it, it is very worrisome if the situation comes to be where the, the financial system is demanding liquidity and the Fed does not provide it. But if the Fed provides it, then it might not be bad. And in fact, I would contend that the Fed's response to the repo gate might be part of the reasons that the stock market has rallied since then. Yeah. And when you look at the technicals on the long end, we had that um, 3.20 or 3.25 kind of range on the 30-year. When you look at the 10-year back in 2012, we hit that all-time low down to roughly 1.3. We retested that again in 2016. I think that those are some big technicals people are looking at. How are you looking at the technicals there on the 10-year Obviously, we've had some inversion um, when you look at twos and tens and, and all throughout the curve. 
Yeah. Um, so first of all, I'm not a huge technical guy. And in fact, okay. even though I was a huge bear, I remember kind of laughing at, at uh, the idea that uh, there's a famous money manager uh, from your neck of the woods that said <laughs> two closes above three and a quarter. And that means we're going to five. That's what I was referencing, right? Yeah. All right. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I think I wrote a piece saying as bearish as I am, I think this is the dumbest reason to ever to uh, short bonds. And in fact, if anything, I think I got for tactically bullish for a small little trade there because uh, one thing i've learned is that when everyone starts telling you what the, you know that there's some technical break and that everyone uh, is in on that trade that's when you should be going the other way uh having said that there's no doubt that there seems to be some levels that matter and there's a lot of people who believe in the dark magic as i like to call it Mm-hmm. And, and and you get a situation where people pile in and and i see like for example this summer i think it got really obscene because there was the you know we were hitting new lows in, in yield and we there was no offerings there was nobody there to sell but having said that um i i kind of look at this situation and i think to myself that we are going to start to grind higher as long as my fundamental story which is that the governments are going to start to spend and 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 are going to go down that road as long as they're doing that i think that we're going to start to find ourselves grind higher and one of the things that i will contend is that that the yield curve in meaning that you know those two tens or the five thirties is an important thing to watch and that, that if my thesis is correct you should see basically the curve steepening you know sooner rather than later and I actually believe that that's going to be one of the best ways to express this view going forward, because I think that eventually we're going to hit all-time wides in the yield curve. I could see a situation where the front end of the curve is 2% and the long end is 8 or 10 And I know people will tell me that's crazy and it's nuts. But then again, I tell them, you know, nobody believes that we could go negative below zero either. Right. And I think the last thing to touch on is exactly that point. I think there's a lot of people out there who've said, okay, the Fed can really target and pin down the shorter end of the curve, but maybe not the long end. And we already discussed this a little bit, but I think, you know, when you look at that scenario, how do you see that playing out as far as the long end getting away from the Fed? And then maybe we get into that transition where basically the fed starts moving up rates as the economy gets better and and expectations get better because the long end has gone up and hopefully it won't, won't be so drastic that it just shoots up right away, but maybe more gradual. Yeah. I think, I think the, the, the long end is going to get ahead, uh, you know, away from them. I don't think it's going to be that big a deal, but I I'll tell you one thing that I think that's going to be even more dramatic than the long end is going to be tips. I contend that one of the best trades out there is actually to be long break-evens, meaning you're long the tips versus short the nominal, so that all you're trading is future inflation uh, kind of expectations. Mm -hmm. And when I think about what scares me going forward... And what I think, you know, people's portfolios, what they're positioned for. One of the, the one of the bedrock beliefs that I, I've experienced in my career is the idea that if you put a stock and bond a stock portfolio along with a bond portfolio, that there'll be the negative correlation between those two. Meaning that when stocks fall really hard, bonds go up. 
is actually one of the things that enables you to uh, kind of sleep best at night. And in fact, risk parity was even one of the, that's one of the main reasons behind it. That's the, the, the famous hedge fund strategy by Ray, Ray Dalio at Bridgewater. And they, in essence, have, have made themselves the biggest hedge fund in the world based upon this belief. I contend that, uh, you know, I, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble from the, the risk parity guys and, and tell they're going to tell me it's a lot more than this. And I do understand that it's a lot more than this. But I contend that one of the things this has enabled, that risk parity has enabled them to do is basically lever up, a, a, you know, a, a four decade long bull market in bonds. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, they, they've, in essence, mixed a portfolio they, uh, of stocks with bonds and because they've made the volatility of the two of them the same they've made a situation where they've been levered up with more bonds and it's been just kind of the best of both worlds because the reality is that when stocks went down your bonds more than made up for it and you were long a ton and then in the meantime bonds have been going up in value down in yield that's whole time so it's just been like nirvana for the risk parity people i go and look at like in history and you realize that in a period of inflation this negative correlation between stocks and bonds actually disappears and it becomes positively correlated and what worries me most about the way that uh, investors are set up is the idea that they have too much bonds in their portfolio and instead of them being a life preserver in a a stormy sea i think that it could actually be a situation where they end up being the anchor that drags them down um, and so I think that the one of the few things that you can own it, to, to save yourself against this is inflation. And then the way you own inflation is through inflation break-evens. Now, some people will tell me you should own gold and you should own other things for inflation. I'm sympathetic to those ideas as well. But I think the purest form is through inflation break-evens. And not only that, if if one of the kind of ideas behind my idea, like uh, this this overall overall theme I have of fiscal over monetary i would say that along with fiscal over monetary has been uh the idea of it's been wall street over main street Mm -hmm. and i contend that going forward in the next decades we're going to see main street return and in main street returning we're going to see more kind of regular inflation. Like maybe even you'll see a situation where the average worker starts to make money because we haven't spoken about this, but one of the other things that's occurring at this very same time that we're getting a situation where the fiscal is getting understood to create inflation. We're also getting a situation where the globalization that has been in place for the past kind of three or four decades is about to turn over and go the other way. And if you think about what happened, you know, when China joined the WTO and also when the Berlin Wall fell, you know, the Iron Curtain fell, you had this huge influx of supply side uh, on the supply side of labor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this globalization has basically meant that labor has gone down and down and down and down in price. And there's been no bargaining, you know, power up from, from, for, for labor. Well, in that whole period, basically corporate profits have been shooting up and labor's percentage of the economy has been going down. If I'm correct and that we get a situation where we get a switch into fiscal at the same time that we get this uh, kind of change in trend on globalization, and I do believe that's here, I think that it's not just Trump, I think even the Democrats and everybody has had a different change of attitude towards China. I think that the the tide has definitely turned. All of these are setting up for kind of an inflation tsunami where, you know, I don't think it's going to take off and we're going to see hyperinflation, but I 
very well see a situation where like five years from now, we're talking about 5% inflation. And what do you own in that scenario? And I think inflation break-evens is probably one of the best trades. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Kevin, really appreciate you coming on today. And these insights are very interesting. Some of the insights you don't see anywhere else. So why don't you tell people where they can find your work and uh, learn more about some of these topics? Thanks a lot, Ryan. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. If people want to learn more about me, go to themacrotourist.com. You can also go on Twitter. I'm at Kevin Muir, M-U-I-R. Thanks again. It's been a lot of fun. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Take care. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at JellyDonutPod. Or you can contact us via email at JellyDonutPodcast at ProtonMail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.